0: Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education,
1: advocacy, and research.
2: Welcome to the AUGMET, the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, a hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University in New Orleans, where our department mascot is an alligator receiving the COVID vaccine. I have no conflicts of interest with any of the authors of these studies or the devices discussed.
1: I'm Lenny Buller. I work at Indiana University, and I was raised to believe that failing to speak up or act in the presence of injustice is as offensive as performing said unjust acts, the only exception being the utter lack of autonomy for my residents in the OR. I also have no conflicts of interest with the authors of these studies or the devices discussed.
3: I'm Mark Mildren. I'm in private practice in Eugene, Oregon at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics. Due to recent legal changes in drug laws in my state, I now put the meth in methods. I also have no conflicts of interest with the authors of these studies or the devices discussed.
4: And I'm Chad Kruger. I'm an academic orthopedic surgeon at the Rothman Institute, whose background in diversity includes growing up in Maine as a white middle-class male. So I have no personal conflicts of interest with any of the devices discussed in this talk tonight.
2: So for this month's episode of The Augment, we hope to have a candid conversation about diversity or the lack thereof in the field of orthopedics in general and adult reconstruction in particular.
3: So one of the things that we really wanted to delve into with this panel is it seemed like some of the panels that we've listened to in the past didn't really, you know, you've got people on there that, well, they get nervous about this stuff. And to be perfectly honest, I'm a little bit nervous about this stuff. And one of the things that we're hoping with this podcast is to really kind of get into those areas that make us uncomfortable.
2: And now that we've said we're going to make everyone uncomfortable, let's introduce our guests. We'll start with Dr. Linda Suleiman. She is a hip and knee surgeon in Chicago, Illinois. She did her fellowship in adult reconstruction at Rush University and is an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery, as well as the assistant dean of medical education and director of diversity and inclusion at Northwestern University. She's also a founding member of the AUKUS Women in Orthoplasty Committee.
5: Thanks for having me, Yag. I'm really looking forward to having these discussions. I love uncomfortable conversations, especially as a Black woman in the field of orthopedics. That never happens. But I have no conflicts of interest today and no associations with the authors.
2: Also joining us is Dr. Ugo Ihekwazu, a hip and knee surgeon at the Fondren Orthopedic Group in Houston, Texas. He did his fellowship in adult reconstruction at the Hospital for Special Surgery and is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Houston College of Medicine. He is currently a member of the AUKUS Diversity Advisory Board.
0: Thank you so much for the invitation. Really happy to be here. I'm uncomfortable as well, so we'll work our way through this. And I do not have any conflicts with uh, any devices that may be discussed during this and also the authors on the papers that we are discussing.
2: So now we're going to discuss our first study, the disparities among leading publishers of arthroplasty research from Dr. Antonia Chen's group at Brigham and Whitman's. This was published in a recent issue of the Journal of Arthroplasty. The study is a review of about 15,000 arthroplasty research articles from 12 academic journals. A computer algorithm was used to assign gender to all the authors and analyze their qualifications. They found an overall... 83% unique male authors, and 17% unique female authors. Women in first or senior author positions were statistically significantly less likely than men to have an MD or equivalent degree, and women were also less likely than men to publish five years after beginning their publishing career. They also separately analyzed the 100 most published authors, and these top arthroplasty authors include 96 men, four women, and one woman orthopedic surgeon. They presented a table of the top 10 publishing male and female authors. 10 out of those 10 men were orthopedic surgeons. Two out of the 10 women were orthopedic surgeons, one attending and one resident. The rest of the women were PhDs, did statistician research program directors and such. Interestingly, the number one female author had 87 publications total, while the number 10 man had 98. I thought that the study was quite unique. The first of its kind that I know of to analyze arthroplasty research, and they had, of course, a very large number of studies. Some of the limitations discussed in the article itself. They obviously might not get every single arthroplasty article by limiting themselves to 12 journals. They also did not take into account gender identification other than male and female. And the algorithm may not be perfect, but they did manually verify genders of the top 150 men and women authors. So I guess the question for the group is, overall, why do we think there is this disparity in the gender of these authors, both as a whole and among the top publishers?
5: Yeah, I think that one. You, know, you start with the fact that there just aren't very many women who are in arthroplasty, right? And then you cut it down to the women who are doing research. Most are going to be in some sort of academic practice. I can probably count on two hands the number of women who are joint replacement surgeons in academic practices who are doing high level research. But when you think back to being a resident, you know how does research start, right? It's like we are talking about it in the OR, we're talking about it over a drink, you know, and, and it's that mentorship and that friendship that begins. And then people start to just say, hey, let's throw this person on there. You know, they have a great idea, or if maybe they could help with this. And I just feel like in general, women are just not part of that conversation. I was looking at resident applications for fellowship. And I remember one gentleman saying, well, she doesn't have much research. Well, where do we start? You know, so we can't even get people in to the specialty because we're downplaying their CVs and their research, but it all begins with these peer relationships. And I think a lot of men are uncomfortable having these relationships with women.
0: Yeah, I think there's going to be some themes that come along throughout this discussion as we kind of go through all the articles. And number one is highlighting mentorship and the lack of mentorship uh, in particular for women and also underrepresented minorities throughout orthopedics. Uh, specifically within arthroplasty, but you can, you can also take it one step further and this is throughout entire medicine. And Number two is pipeline programs. What I'm sort of referring to when I say pipeline programs, I'm, I'm talking about let's figure out ways to encourage undergraduate students to enter into medicine from diverse backgrounds. Let's figure out how to, once you're in medical school, encourage people to apply for orthopedics. There's a lack of representation for women and unrepresented minorities within our fields. And an old sort of adage that people will say is what you see is what you will become. And if you're not seeing diverse faces and women within our field and subspecialty, then we're not going to be able to sort of recruit people to come into the field. And then one of the last things is when they actually get into your programs as residents or fellows, how do you retain and how do you sort of maximize their potential? And uh, these are all things that we struggle with, and there's tons of literature that highlight these problems. Uh, And I'm just really encouraged that we're having these discussions now and are starting to bring these problems to the forefront because it's only going to be better for our patients and our field as a whole.
4: So Dr. Silliman, how do you address some of the points that uh, Ugo brought up in, in terms of, you know, increasing the pipeline? And then even then, once you get them in the ORs and you're having those discussions, like making sure, you know, they continue on the path that you think they may enjoy or may benefit from.
5: You know, I think from just speaking on research specifically, I look at these consensus statements that are published and review articles. And if you think about the the type of invitations people get, they're thinking of their buddies, right? I have a paper next month on racial disparities. It was an invited commentary. And I invited five women because they, these are five women who have great ideas who are not in the room. So I think it takes Each of us to actively actually recruit and stop and think about do you know somebody? Do you have a resident who's interested in this? But it takes active work and it takes work. And that message is hard.
4: I think we hit it on the head with the work aspect, right? All of this takes work to do. And I think it's very easy. You get invited to look at people around you or that you've worked with before and work with them. They've probably given you some favors in the past as well. But certainly from a diversity standpoint, that ends up just perpetuating the problem in doing very little to widen anyone's venue in terms of opportunity or ability to deliver to the greater good. But again, it is work. It's certainly, I think, a lot of work on everyone's behalf to kind of take that extra step to figure out like, hey, is there someone else who may be better suited or that I could give an opportunity that's well-deserved to for a project in research? So personally, I think that's one of the biggest obstacles to overcome when it comes to this topic.
5: There's always the assumption that we don't want to even be in the locker room. I remember sitting as a third-year resident with one of uh, my co residents who's a woman, she played golf in college. And it was the two of us, two other male residents, and an attending invited the two males to go golfing. And she was like, well, I'd love to go. I was like, oh, do you like to golf? It's it's just the assumptions that we're not a part of those skill sets or that we don't want to be in the room. And like the repeated notion that we have to like tell you that we want to be there is exhausting. And I think that's why women and uh, under minorities are just tired.
1: I think we all appreciate that we're not there in terms of diversity and in terms of opportunities for everyone. And at the risk of sounding naive, is there a goal that we should be aiming for? I think a starting
0: place would be to uh, aim to have a, a orthopedic workforce, an orthoplasty workforce that resembles society. And obviously that means something different in every sort of geographic region, but Ultimately, right? So Hispanic, Latinx people represent 18% of society in the U.S. Right now, if I'm not mistaken, that our numbers are about 3% of Hispanic surgeons within the United States of orthopedic surgeons. African-Americans represent 13%, right? African-American patients that undergo arthroplasty services are about 8%, right? So it's figuring out how to get a workforce that closely mirrors society and have utilization of a of what the services that we can provide and with services that we know are outstanding to those societies and portions of the population that are underrepresented.
2: And then the other thing I wanted to bring up is the fact that has been brought up multiple times about the work that it will take for mentorship, the work that it will take to increase diversity within our field. That work, I do not think is acknowledged in academic CVs as much as number of publications. So I wanted to bring this up with you, Dr. Suleiman, specifically because you have a position as a director of diversity and inclusion. Are you getting institutional support? Are you getting recognition on your CV in the same way that one of your colleagues who does not do any of this and can solely focus on research is getting?
5: We talked a little bit about this at our last orthopedic diversity leadership consortium because a lot of individuals are being promoted to these vice-chair diversity positions. There's a lot of focus and kind of the limelight on diversity this year, but how are people getting compensated for that time? and then that work you're doing, how's it elevating your career? And I think it really takes a conversation with your institution. you know, I'm very lucky that at my institution there's different tracks with different focuses. So as a clinician educator, My focus is within disparities in arthroplasty and education from a diversity standpoint from cultural competency curriculums and that development. So all of those things will help promote me to the next level, but that's not necessarily the case at every institution. Some of the top 10 institutions, if you look at their academic promotional kind of bibliographies, for example, of what you need to accomplish the next step, it's still really old school, meaning they want either you're a basic scientist or you're doing you know, clinical outcomes type of work. And so I'm hoping 2020, because of the focus on diversity, that institutions are looking at the diversity work that individuals are doing, which is mostly being done by minority physicians, and so this is a way to promote those individuals, not only by compensating them, by elevating them to the next level.
4: I'm curious the guys in private practice on this call and it, it, as well, in terms of diversity, promotion, and so forth in your private practice groups, is that something that's, that's even discussed?
0: It's become clear the impact that someone like me can have in a group like like mine. My input has been sought for new hires within the group, right? So they're asking me, who do I think is someone that we should be recruiting? Are there people from sort of different backgrounds that we can add to the group that would help us reach certain populations throughout the city of Houston? And I'm the only African-American surgeon within our main campus. There's one other surgeon within our group that's an African-American within the group. And so we're clearly underrepresented uh, in a group of approximately 40 people. And having someone like me that is beginning to have a seat at the table certainly helps with that. But as a private practice surgeon, our goals and our sort of motivations are completely different from the academic model. And it's something that's yet to be defined, I would argue, uh, especially for different practices around the country. But ultimately, we all know, and there's significant amount of data to back this up, that the more diverse your practice may be or department may be, you're going to deliver better care. You're going to be more innovative. You're going to be able to attract diverse types of patients into your practice that wouldn't necessarily be attracted to your practice.
3: In private practice, I don't have some of the same opportunities to maybe change the future of orthopedics. I don't have residents that I can institute these programs with or, you know, actively seek out to get a more diverse orthopedic field. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people in private practice listening to this. How do we help? I want to help, but I don't know how.
0: There are a number of programs, pipeline programs, that are in need of, um, it might be financial support, it might be support to take on a, a student that might be close to your region. Nth Dimensions is a program that was founded to sort of work as a pipeline to steer underrepresented minorities to orthopedics. It's for students, students applied during their first year and after their first year of medical school, during their summer vacation, they spend the entire summer working with orthopedic surgeons, either, typically it's within an academic medical center. They do research, they're in the OR, and that's a program that is constantly looking for mentors, people to give lectures, people to partner with, uh, they're, they're looking for funding. There's so many different ways to kind of get involved with that. Uh, but what I would always say is figuring out ways to volunteer at local high schools, or there's all types of programs that are just looking for for people within our field to contribute. And if you can specifically seek out people that are underrepresented or female, that would be a way to help out.
4: Uga, that's a great point. Thank you for that. The next article we will be discussing tonight is Trends in Leadership at Orthopedic Surgery Adult Reconstruction Fellowships. My only conflict for this is that I am at the institution where some of the authors of this paper are from. But In summary, this is a retrospective study. It used the AUKUS directory to identify the fellowship program directors at the Adult Reconstruction Fellowships. The authors then use an internet aggregation model and emails and surveys to gather CV information about the fellowship program directors. In addition to using Scopus to determine academic proliferation, and publications during their careers. The main finding from the study was that of the 94 program directors that responded, 100% were male and 80% were white. In general, the respondents were all well-accomplished in terms of research productivity, and the authors found that over 40% of the program directors trained at one of eight fellowship programs, and over 20% of the fellowship program directors went to one of six residencies. So the strengths of this paper it's a pretty comprehensive review of the fellowship program directors. They didn't have 100% response rate, but 94 is more than half. So they did pretty well there, which gets to our limitation. The information on this article is based on that, that they got from respondents in terms of what their responses were um, and what they could find on the internet. So there may be some inaccuracies in general. In addition, this is a cross-sectional study. So it's possible that things could change. Uh, having said that, you know, the mean time in that position for each fellowship program director was 10 years. So it, it doesn't look like it would be changing very rapidly if things were to change year by year. So I guess my main question to the group is not necessarily why aren't there more minorities in these positions, but How long can we expect before we can see these changes taking place? And then what can we do to try to accelerate those changes so that we can have a more diverse group that, as Ugo mentioned earlier, you know, is more representative of our society and even our profession in general? This was such a depressing paper,
3: by the way, like just to see like the status of where we're at and 100% male and 80% white. That was like those numbers just kind of hit you right in the gut. I don't have a good answer for that, but that's, it was depressing to see that.
0: You don't know where you're going if you don't really know where you're starting from. So I think that's a good starting place. We have to sort of establish where we are. AUKUS has recently sort of formed a diversity advisory board. It's something that sort of was thought of and sort of created beginning last summer. as This country is really going through an awakening as far as some of the social justice or injustice marches were occurring in cities all around the country and I really applaud AUKUS leadership for answering the call to create this new committee within AUKUS. The goals of this uh, new committee within AUKUS is to number one increase diversity within our society. So that's by recruitment and also mentoring people that are within the field. Also building pipeline programs to recruit residents. And for people that are already surgeons within the group, how do you mentor them to become leaders within AUKUS? And how can we foster diversity within our leadership ranks? So it's going to take a lot more than just committees to sort of take us to where we want to be. It's going to take allies. It's going to take a lot of hard work. So I'm excited about the future, but we'll see.
1: But is it fair also to place all the burden on you? Hugo, to develop this advisory board and do everything for us? Is that fair, do you think?
0: Let me just take a step back and say it's not just on me. And we do have co-chairs, Dr. Adelani out of WashU, Adam Sassoon out of uh, UCLA. And uh, we've got a liaison with the leadership with Dr. Mary O'Connor out of Yale. So, and it's a big group. But yeah, no, it's a great question, right? So to sort of answer this call, should it be just on this select number of underrepresented minorities to sort of answer this entire call for the entire field of And The answer is no. We need allies, we need funding, we need people to join us and sort of this fight to diversify our field for the betterment of our patients. I'm a private practice doctor, right? I I enjoy my practice, I'm building my practice, but it's also incumbent on me as a male of color to figure out ways to to help other people that want to be orthoplasty surgeons get into the field and also figure out ways to better communicate with our patients. And
4: I think to me, one of the most interesting aspects of this paper was that over 40% of the fellowship program directors came from eight fellowships, right? So is that an issue of once those eight fellowships or something along those lines, a certain number of fellowships that tend to produce program fellowship directors, you know, once those become diverse enough, does this have a trickle-down effect? What I'm trying to say, I guess, is it speaks to more of the global issue, right? Where it's not just at one level, like this is a a culture-wide or profession-wide initiative, it would need to take place for any of these changes to have meaningful and long-lasting effects.
2: I do think it is important to note that the Diversity Advisory Board was formed after the women in arthroplasty group. I think a lot of times when orthopedics is thinking about diversity, the first place they go is to white ladies. So I think there's an important work to be done to expand what may be a more comfortable view of diversity for a mostly white male leadership right? It's more comfortable for them to think of diversity as white women because that's more familiar, right? And so I think the challenge is how do we expand that beyond and not just say, oh, we have a certain number of women attendings or a certain number of women residents and we can stop there.
5: I think you're right, Anna. That is the place of comfort for white men is going to first fire, Let's bring in white women. And That's what diversity message, at least most people of color, brown and black have been hearing for the last five to 10 years from an orthopedic standpoint. And I think back to what you keep asking, Mark, is like, what can I do? And, you know, I don't have the answer to that by any means. And I'm not going to pretend like I have the answer to that. But to me, it comes down to this cultural issue of a culture of orthopedics. And are we that welcoming to people who look different? And so, you know, I think back to everything that happened this summer, like this was not the first Black man who's been killed and has not been the first Black man who's been killed on camera. And I think about the number of friends or partners who... Came to work, we had kind of a 30 minutes one morning where we weren't going to start our ORs, where we're going to sit down and kneel for 30 minutes. And the number of people who were upset that the OR was going to start late across the country, instead of asking, well, why are we starting the OR late? Are our colleagues of color okay? It was hard waking up for me, at least, thinking about my Black physician husband going to work every day, because no matter whether he's wearing a white coat or scrubs, he's a Black man to any individual. And so that fear, that was a real fear for my brothers, my family, and I can count the number of times any of my white male colleagues ask me like, what's going on with you? Are you okay? What can I do to help you? And so just starting with having real conversations and not just about like the surface, but like what is happening in our society to people,
0: yeah, it's spot on. I just kind of wanted to introduce a couple terms and phrases. We've been using the term underrepresented minority, and that can be a confusing term to a lot of people. Underrepresented minorities are people or groups of people that are underrepresented within the field of orthopedics or arthroplasty or whichever field you want to talk about, but relative to their place in society, right? So African-Americans Hispanics, uh, Pacific Islander, and I think I might be blanking on one group here. Mainland Puerto Rican are also underrepresented. So whereas obviously white Americans and Asians, and this is one place that a lot of people get hung up on is that Asians are actually not underrepresented within medicine and within orthopedics. So that's, you have to frame the conversation in a way that, that all of us in sort of understand it. Number two is the concept of implicit bias. And these are terms that are used pretty frequently, but uh, may not be appropriately defined for people that are wanting to sort of engage in these conversations. Implicit bias is sort of a social science term that is used to describe the sort of subconscious assumptions that we all make for sort of things that we see, people that we meet, or objects that we see in everyday life, right? So if I see a man walking down the street with a stroller, I'm going to assume that that child within the stroller is that man's son or, or daughter. And generally, the implications for me potentially being wrong in this scenario are pretty minimal. But if we take implicit biases and use them for race or gender stereotypes that may be harmful to others, then that can be a problem, and in particular for uh, physicians that are taking care of patients and, and all of us within society. And there's actually a very interesting website, implicit.harvard.edu, that allows anyone to go onto their website and they have all these different implicit bias tests based on race, based on gender, based on socioeconomic status, so on and so forth. These tests take about five minutes. And it, if you're really interested in determining whether or not you have implicit biases based on race or based on gender, I encourage you to take these tests and kind of see where things fall. It showed that I had a slight preference towards white people. And I'm an African-American man that grew up in inner-city Houston in a low socioeconomic environment, and it showed that I have a slight preference towards white people. This is something that we all deal with. Unless you sort of uh, be honest with yourself and try to figure out ways for self-growth and do these things and have these difficult conversations, we're not going to sort of grow as a society.
3: Next article we're going to discuss is the Association of Race-Ethnicity and Totally Arthroplasty Outcomes in the Universally Insured Population. This was a study out of Kaiser for them doing this study. There were multiple studies have been done showing both later interventions for arthritis as well as worse overall outcomes for minorities undergoing joint replacement procedures of the lower extremities. Insurance status was always kind of a potential confounder with these studies. This study aimed to eliminate this as a modifier, only Kaiser patients. It studied revision rates for white versus three different minority groups. So this was 130,000 total knee arthroplasties done from 2000 to 2016 over multiple geographic regions. They looked at demographics, comorbidities, the type of implants as far as posterior stabilized versus cruciate retaining. Uh, those were measured. Uh, they kind of utilized normal exclusion, inclusion criteria, nothing funny as far as that goes. Uh, the main outcome was all-cause revision at the latest follow-up. Uh, sub-outcomes were the cause of revision, septic versus aseptic revision, and then if any of the following happened within 90 days, readmission and ER visit, reoperation, VTE, or mortality One of the interesting things that they did was geocoding was used to estimate both income as well as educational level based on the geographic location of the patient. I thought this may be a little bit problematic. They discussed this as one of their limitations. So the findings compared to whites, Asians had a statistically lower septic, aseptic, and overall rate of revision. Black patients had a higher aseptic rate of revision. They had similar rates of septic revision and a higher rate of overall revision, maybe due to the increased rate of aseptic rate of revision. Hispanics had the lowest rate of septic revisions. This most likely accounted for the lower rate of overall revisions. At 90 days in in some of the sub-outcomes, Black patients had a high rate of ED visits and readmission. Interestingly enough, Hispanics had the lowest rate of deep infection. So some of the strengths of this study, this was an insurance controlled study, only Kaiser patients, large hospital system. They took one of the confounders out of patients having surgery at maybe a lower quality hospital. They talked about previous studies showing black patients are more likely to have their surgery done at a lower quality hospital. So this kind of excluded that as a confounder, utilized the TJRR, large database study follow-up I thought was appropriate. All in all, I thought this was a good study for me. It generated more questions, which, uh, you know, all good studies do limitations of the study. So I thought it was a little bit, maybe not accurate. I know that's been reported uh, before, but that they estimated socioeconomic data and education data. This may be difficult, especially in the Kaiser insured population. One of my biggest questions, and I thought this was a big limitation of this study. So black patients, if you look at the demographic, they had a higher rate of patients with a BMI over 35. Uh, We know that this is a potential reason for having an aseptic loosening. This was never analyzed or really discussed. I thought that was kind of a big miss in the study. So as far as discussion goes, one of the key points was that black patients have a high rate of ED visits, high rate of ED admissions following their procedure. Should we be concentrating maybe a little bit more preoperative education, more reassurance on our African-American patients? I can tell you personally, I probably spend a little bit more time with my African-American patients just talking over stuff, making sure they understand stuff because Well, I know that there's a high rate of them potentially, I don't want to say not trusting, but maybe just I look different than them. So I try and explain stuff maybe a little bit more than I do for people that look like me. And, And maybe that's the wrong thing to do. But I mean, that's how I try to do it. And should we be doing more of that?
5: For one, whenever I look at these types of studies, looking at patient outcomes, no one ever mentions what the surgeons look like. And that has such an impact on patient outcomes. Patients of color have a very different relationships with surgeons and physicians of color. Same thing with gender. And so I think that pays one, a role in outcomes, but two is being aware of who your patients are. Like you mentioned, Mark, I'm in Chicago. Most of my patients in my practice are black patients from lower socioeconomic status in the city. And there's little things as part of our pre-education class is making sure you have a family member on that pre-op virtual call with you. So there's a family member who's also hearing this information and understanding that this is the number you call if there's a problem. And then closer follow-up. Are we bringing these patients in when there's a problem? Because if you look at the kind of national ED data, most patients are coming in with these surgical complications outside of orthopedics, are our Black patients. And if you look also nationally, is less likely to have a primary care doctor as well. So I think it takes a lot of pre-op education and understanding, but also with these studies, like, we need to make sure that we know who our surgeons are. Are our surgeons invested in this as much as we are?
3: That was yeah. one of the questions I had, is if there is a mismatch between what the surgeon versus what the patient looks like, does that make a difference in outcomes? And I thought that was one of the interesting questions that this study raised.
0: Yeah, what I would submit is that yes, if there's a mistrust of physicians in particular, or really doctors as a whole, specifically from the African-American community. And I would absolutely say yes, if you look back at our history, specifically in this country, for looking at things like the Tuskegee trials and other numerous occasions to where people in the African-American community were used as subjects in ways to where they shouldn't have been. And Uh, have been mistreated. There are numerous studies, numerous studies that show, uh, even in pediatric populations, that African-American patients have their pain responded to in worse or inadequate ways compared to others. And even last week, there was a female physician at the University of Indiana who had COVID, was undertreated, and passed away. And all of these stories are sort of discussed in barbershops, at cookouts, those homes, and are part of the way we sort of teach our children. And these are all things that people grow up with. They hear about their uncles, their aunts, their cousins that have had bad experiences. Therefore, they are less likely to try to receive treatments for problems that they really have. This is why in the study, the utilization of total New Yorker percent from African-Americans compared to a 13% population of African-Americans in the general population. So we're not utilizing the resources that are available to us and when we do re- utilize these resources, we really don't trust the people that are rendering these service to us. Therefore, we're going to have more problems with uh, lack of communication, which leads to emergency room visits, needs for revision, and mismatch of expectations between the patient and the provider.
3: And I guess that raises a very interesting question as what can I do to make my Black patients more comfortable?
0: Everything that you seem to be doing right now, right, it's, it's being honest, it's, it's being genuine, trying to figure out ways to understand where you might be inadequate as a person, right? And this is why I think it's important to take these implicit association tests. It's figuring out ways to hire a more diverse workforce, right? So the people that work with you in your office, your MAs, your PAs, MPs, whoever else is working with you, try to figure out ways to diversify your team. Step one is understanding that we are all inadequate in this specific area and trying to figure out ways to learn more about it and address the areas that you're weak in because we all are all weak in these areas.
5: I think it's also asking more information of your patients and, and being really pointed in that. I remember as a trainee, the person was wearing a certain hat or a golf tee. And there would be a conversation of, oh, so what do you like to do? And uh, I like to golf. And, you know, I run this company or I'm an attorney or whoever I am. And I saw those shared conversations with white patients. And I saw that less so with black patients, where are we asking, you know, what do you do for work? Are you on your feet all day? Is there anyone at home that's going to be able to help you? What does your house look like? Where's the closest PT gym? I mean, there's so many things that we could ask to gauge what our post-op recovery is going to look like for our patients. And this is for any patient really, but because of our own white preferences and biases, those questions are less asked of, of black patients.
0: I think this is ultimately why we need diverse residency programs, right? We need diverse faculty members. We need diverse nursing staff. We need diverse PAs, so on and so forth, right? So if you have more exposure to people from diverse backgrounds, you can figure out ways to have these sort of conversations because you've been exposed to these cultures from your partners or from your teammates or whoever it might be. I'm really lucky to be able to have grown up in a really diverse neighborhood in the city of Houston, pretty much an immigrant neighborhood. But a lot of people don't have those experiences growing up. And especially if you're going to a non-diverse university, a non-diverse medical school, a uh, orthopedic surgery program that is not diverse, that doesn't have underrepresented minorities or or women, it's tough. And you're going to find it hard pressed to be able to relate to patients from diverse backgrounds because there's just a lack of exposure. So I think the onus is on us to figure out ways to diversify our programs, our societies, so that us as surgeons can also develop these sort of shared cultural experiences that we can use to relate to our patients ultimately.
5: Yeah, I think when we talk about fellowship programs for arthroplasty, to me, you know, if all the fellowship directors happen to be males and 80% happen to be white males, you know, all I personally would like to ask is that we look at the cohort of individuals that we've selected over the last, I don't know, 10 years and like actually making an effort to look at the data within each of our fellowship programs to see, you know, what are the number of underrepresented minorities we've had in this fellowship program? What are the number of women that we've had in this fellowship program? How do we even interview and select these candidates? Is there a cultural issue within our programs? I think that the easy answer is like, oh, there's not enough that apply, but are we really looking at the people who are applying and giving opportunities to meet them? So I think we're at a critical point now that we have this opportunity, at least within arthroplasty. There's a lot of residents who are women and who are of color who want to be joint replacement surgeons, but it's feeling that connection that somebody actually wants to welcome them into our specialty.
0: Yeah, and that, that, that sort of brings up another point in, in how residents are chosen. Uh, mm-hmm. A number of studies have shown that historic sort of parameters that we look at, USMLE scores, STEP scores, AOA status, all these things are bias. We look at them as objective measures, right? We say, we've got too many applicants, we just need to sort of whittle this applicant pool down by setting cutoffs and using these objective measures to compare applicants, right? But when your objective measures are biased, then you're going to end up with a residency program that doesn't reflect society. So it's trying to figure out ways to use alternative measures for comparing uh, applicants and potential residents. There's this thing called distance traveled, and it's going to be an exercise in sort of literal versus sort of figurative speech. But distance traveled sort of refers to how many obstacles did someone have to overcome to get into this position to be applying for a residency program, right? So if you have two applicants, one applicant came from a rural background or in a city background, didn't have any mentors, didn't have any uh, people that they knew that were physicians, And they otherwise have sufficient scores to make it into medical school. And you compare them to someone that is from the upper middle class. They may have an aunt that's a anesthesiologist who works at the local academic medical center. What is the distance traveled for each of those candidates? The person that is coming from a rural background or any city background probably has had to overcome a lot of things to get to where they are at that point and probably have some level of grit or resilience that would make them a potentially great orthopedic resident, perhaps their step score might be a little bit lower. But again, when you understand and recognize that the step scores could be biased based off of their socioeconomic status, then that might be an, an alternative way to get people that wouldn't necessarily otherwise have access to residency programs into a residency program and increase the diversity of your workforce.
4: Uh, I'm so glad you gave me a term to use with distance travel. It's, it's a very valid point. And, and I agree that I think some of the, the best people I've worked with have certainly traveled the farthest distance. And it makes a big difference in terms of maturity and being able to kind of handle everything that comes with you for this profession.
5: Interestingly enough, what Ugo mentioned about step one scores in AOA, I'm not sure if you guys saw that paper by Dr. Selina Poon that was published last month about looking at admissions into orthopedic residencies, even despite equivalent step scores, AOA, research, Black candidates were less likely to get into orthopedics. And that's just that's con- looking at all the same scores. And so to me, like, what is that about? Why is that happening? even when Why you get the same on paper. I think it goes back to what's comfortable for the majority of individuals who are in orthopedics. You're going to be more comfortable with people who look like you. So you're going to find something to discredit that individual. And you don't even know that you're finding those flaws because it's all unconscious. It's an unconscious bias, that preference that you have for people who look like you who have the same shared experiences. And it requires you actually acknowledging that you have those preferences and unconscious biases to look past those remarks about individuals.
2: How many times have you in academics heard, oh, they're not a good fit? Right. And no one has to justify that with anything.
4: It's a great point. It's thrown around all the time.
0: I was just gonna say one additional thought is once you get uh diverse peoples uh, into their said program. You gotta figure out ways to help them thrive while they're there. There are so many people that are the first, right, within their program still to this day. It takes mentorship, especially if there aren't mentors that look like that person within the program. It's gonna take intentional mentorship from people in leadership positions to help see these residents, these trainees, through so that they can also become future leaders within our field.
3: I just had two thoughts and neither of which are intelligent. Jason Brooks published a study in JBJS, I think it was November, and it talked about residency admissions and why there's not more minorities within orthopedics. And so it asked uh, program directors about, you know, Why, why don't you? And kind of the biggest reason is we don't have enough minority applicants. And so it kind of gave a list of reasons of why they didn't have minorities in their field. And all those kind of go into this explicit bias. So those are like the official reasons, but none of it really goes into the implicit bias that Ugo mentioned of, you know, Maybe they just weren't a good fit because their skin doesn't look like us. So that was thought number one. The second thought, again, not intelligent. It would be a really interesting study if we did a blinded study and have either fellowship directors or program directors take that implicit bias test and then publish that Uh, information. That would be really interesting if anyone wants to do that.
0: What I will say, if if I'm not mistaken, at Ohio State, I think it was Ohio State for medical school, they had their admissions committee. Students, faculty take the implicit association tests and they sort of mapped the results based off of gender, based off of faculty rank students. But regardless of those points, what was actually more interesting is that in the subsequent class of matriculating medical students, they had their most diverse class ever. So I think it takes having these conversations and understanding that we all have these problems within ourselves. Some People a little bit worse than others, but we all have these these, these problems within ourselves. And if you're too afraid to address these problems, then we're not going to make any progress. And we have to make progress because it's so important, not just for us feeling better about ourselves, but more importantly, it's about our patients. And uh, we've got to move our societies forward, got to move our field forward. And the way we do it is by having these sort of shared difficult conversations.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Suleiman and Dr. Heahekwazoo for joining us today. Make sure to visit the Young Orthoplasty Group website on AUKUS.org for links to the articles we discussed, as well as how to join YAG and AUKUS. You can learn more about the pipeline program supporting women and underrepresented minorities in orthopedic surgery that we discussed today by going to their websites, including Nth Dimensions at NthDimensions.org, the Gladden Society at GladdenSociety.org, and the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society at RJOS.org. Links will also be found in this episode's show notes. We will also provide a link to the Harvard Implicit Association's test. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next month.
1: Thank you for joining us for AUKUS
3: Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate advocate and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.